This is Andre Cohen from the Mayo Clinic. In this episode of Speaking of, we will talk with Russell Chamberlain about equine therapy and why it might be important to think about how predators interact with prey. But before we get to that, I just want to read this um, aphorism from um, Charles Mayo. It must be remembered that physicians of today are trained to treat the sick, and they must learn how to examine the so-called well person to prevent them from getting sick. On this episode, we're going to talk about psychological safety in this time of polarized discourse. And without further delay, let's get into today's show. Speaking of diversity and inclusion from the Mayo Clinic. Yeah, first I want to say thanks for inviting me to do this. It's a like you mentioned, it's been an interesting journey. You and I met back at a national leadership conference when you were a high school student and I was a college student on the staff. Um, and that was many, many years ago. Um, so it's, it's certainly a pleasure to um, see see you uh, in the position you're in now and, and consider also for both of us how life experiences has impacted the way we, we do what we do daily with folks. And in the, I work in the Portland metro area, Oregon, uh, with youth, families, and couples ages 12 and up, um, providing experiential behavioral health care. So I do uh, groups and individual sessions. I do activities in the office as well as equine-assisted psychotherapy. All of that from sort of a, a trauma-informed focus but also with the idea of um, that we can get into as we go along that definitely relates to self-care and um, how we are with other people. The idea of really being present, creating a safe place for folks in whatever the context is so that they can have better opportunities to learn, better opportunities to create relationships and to grow and heal. When you say healing, what, what are you referring to? What I'm thinking about in that, in that sense is um, both what I do day to day as a parent of twin teenagers, and then also what I do in my practice um, when I'm in quote session with someone and I get to see them for 50 minutes to an hour kind of thing. Um, so for me, the healing process is as much about me being again, as present as I can be and being um, really clear on what kind of safety I'm providing for the other person rather than being caught up in my agenda about, well, they have this treatment plan that they need to follow through on, or, well, they're paying me X amount of dollars an hour, or their parents have expectations if it's a teenager I'm working with, um, or it's a, con a couple that's in conflict, um, and they have reasons for being there, reasons for not being there, all that kind of thing. So it's creating a sense of safety for them um, that then opens them up to that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've been learning about um, more recently that made sense through um, the 35 or more years that I've worked with youth and families, starting with that program that you and I met, 
at way way back in the day is is uh, polyvagal theory uh, um, based on research by Dr. Stephen Porges that's looking at um, expanding the way that we formally considered our response to stress. So um, folks can look it up. There's links on my website and my bio, and and imagine a lot of your folks that are listening to this have heard about it as well. But it's that idea that we have an unconscious response to all of the input that's coming in from around us. Our body has an unconscious response before we even get to making choices about it. So we have that sense of, do I feel safe right now? Or is this a situation where I'm going to go into that sort of fight or flight mode and my body is going to do all sorts of things to prepare itself to deal with that fight or flight? Or am I in a situation where I'm feeling completely overwhelmed um, and I go into freeze or shutdown or in a psychological sense, dissociation so that I um, am kind of gone and go back into my reptilian brain and flip on my back like a lizard and stick my legs up in the air. Um, so that's the kind of thing I keep in mind um, and do it to varying degrees, <laughs> better or worse, depending on the day and who I'm with. And certainly in, uh, in issues of being a parent myself and working with parents as well as how do I be present and how do I keep my own emotional regulation going in my uh, interactions with folks. Have, are you seeing in, in our current kind of uh, political climate and just the, the atmosphere that we seem to be in in the United States that, that is so very polarized, I wasn't going to say paralyzed, but so polarized, are, are you seeing people, so, so what are some techniques that you're, you're offering folks to actually help them to regulate their emotions when there seems to be such a, a, a thrust to keep poking at that, uh, that reptilian brain or that lizard brain to, to respond. Are, are you seeing a need for that? And, and what kinds of things are you uh, helping your clients to kind of deal with? Yeah, I think um, it, part of what you're asking goes back to that broader sense of, of how we're being inundated with exposure to traumatic events um, in the media, um, whether it's national, natural disasters, like the fires recently in California, or mass shootings that seem to happen way too often, um, or exposure to the political responses. And the, again, the sort of not bipartisan, but strongly partisan views that react to, well, is this natural disaster a product of lack of funding? Is it a product of climate change? Is it a product of um, some other issue that's going on with folks? And the same when it comes to issues around mass shootings and those kind of things. And then go from that into the exposure that we all get as we have ever increasing um, kind of automatic need to check in with social media and, and even respond with our opinions on social media. So what I'm seeing in general, both with adults and with um, healing professionals that I work with, I do some stuff around compassion fatigue with healing professionals um, and, and even teens is getting our, getting a, a opportunity to work on self-care through having first that sense of awareness 
of all the different things that are coming in and being clear on what those different uh, pieces of input are rather than just sort of floating around and continuing to be overwhelmed by it. And then having a way of determining how am I going to create sort of in a process approach for folks, how am I going to regain or get for the first time in my life, maybe a sense of balanced living so that I have a balanced approach to the way I expose myself to things, a balanced approach to the way I deal with my relationships, a balanced approach to um, all the aspects that I do to take care of myself. And that's in a personal way and also in a professional setting, whether I'm dealing with um, coworkers at the place that I work or whether I'm dealing with clients or patients. So can somatic therapy um, be a way for me to deal with compassion fatigue or, or even self-care? Um, and, and can you talk a little bit about somatic therapy? Somatic therapy is honestly not something that I've had lots of specific training in, but obviously the things I'm speaking to um, around polyvagal theory and the activities, a lot of the activities I use, whether it's grounding or um, mindfulness or sort of brief meditation techniques or that kind of things have a somatic component to it. But I wouldn't claim to have an expertise in like somatic experiencing or uh, sensory motor psychotherapy, EMDR, those kind of approaches that are uh, more explicitly somatic focused. But the reality is that um, just like you're saying, what, what somatic approach can do is, again, just being aware of the impact all those different exposures that I go through every day um, have on my, on my body um, mm -hmm. and, and being aware that those are happening in an unconscious way that I can't control or that depending on my background, if I have a, um, I may be a very successful person in, in the setting that I'm in. I may work with folks who are um, struggling in all kinds of different ways, but I'm, maybe I have a complex traumatic background. Maybe I'm someone who has, um, for folks that have, um, you probably are going to be talking to folks about adverse childhood experiences um, and the, the impact of, of neglect, the impact of direct abuse, the impact of um, sort of cultural trauma that's gone on, the impact of economic trauma that's gone, that's gone on, just for the folks that are um, North American, the historical stuff that folks have been through. And then if we're working with an immigrant population, the issues that they bring in, in whatever area they came from in the world and the process of, of their transition to the United States as well. My background, um, again, sort of, that transition from when you and I first met um, and doing those national leadership conferences, which was again from a from a sort of polyvagal sense, was me working with lots and lots of other fairly privileged white kids coming from suburbia to a fancy sort of camp on the coast of Lake Michigan, um, and then uh, one day. Uh, one of the one of the conferences I start with this big busload of folks comes in from from that brought you and your cohort in there and and I think you've expressed to me before that that was a big difference for you 
um, and suddenly being exposed to um, a setting where we're sort of, you're like, okay, is this safe for me? How am I going to feel about this? And we can talk about that more in, in a bit if you want to, but I went from doing those leadership sort of conference things to um, working with wilderness programming, doing, uh, getting some training at National Outdoor Leadership School, and then working for a lot of years and doing wilderness programs that were more with delinquent and at-risk youth um, in Pennsylvania and Oregon and Hawaii, and uh, found that it, it was the sense of providing a unique um, environment for folks to challenge the patterns and behaviors that they were used to doing before made a big difference. And I thought wilderness stuff was outstanding um, for that, for having an impact on clients. And similarly, doing sort of challenge ropes courses, um, which were kind of both in the in the wilderness sense and in the um, challenge course sense, there was a bit of perceived risk involved. Um, mm-hmm. The wilderness courses were not the old old school survival kinds of things where you get a, a bag of beans and a blanket, wool blanket, and and then you you learn from there. It was much uh, much more structured and safe. Moved into going from those wilderness courses to working in a uh, my master's practicum in uh, when I was at Arizona State University and sort of backed into doing my master's practicums at Sierra Tucson, which was a and still is a sort of high-end um, residential treatment program for folks dealing with, um, at that point, it was primarily addictions, but also eating disorders and some trauma. And now they've expanded to a lot more about a whole range of trauma stuff, um, as well as a program that was based out of there that did five to seven-day workshops where clients would fly in from around the country and work on their trauma stuff and doing extensive experiential um, activities throughout the day, psychodrama and that kind of stuff. They had a, they also had some horses there and I went and saw what those were like one time. And I was really struck by the impact that the horses had on it. Um, and that was about 20, 22 years ago or something like that. Hmm. Along the way, did some training and experience myself in it. And what was striking for me at the time was how, um, there was there was such a level of, of authenticity and a level of um, openness that people had, regardless of their fear about horses. Uh, the the amount of change that was possible was so much more impactful um, and apparent, and and sometimes dramatic, sometimes not as dramatic. But based on the what the participants were saying, it seemed dramatic. And in my own experience of um, doing some of the work the first time was far more impactful even than the wilderness experiences or the intensive cathartic kind of psychodrama work that can be done. So I was like, wow, I really want to, I want to learn more about this. Um, got training with a program called EGALA. That's the Equine Assisted Growth and Learning Association um, first about 18, 19 years ago. Um, and then uh, went through series of group and private practice work and counseling in school settings and all that kind of stuff and always wanted to do 
equine work. The challenge with equine work is that you have to have horses. <laughs> you have to have a facility, um, and the vast majority of facilities are based on boarding horses or running riding lessons for folks. And uh, uh, most of the work that the 99% of the work that we do is ground-based with horses. Uh, so with that background um, laid out there, the, where I, what I think horses provide, horses, donkeys, and mules in particular, equines provide, is the starting with the, depending on their size, they're huge in the case of horses and mules. Um, so, so that's an, sort of that unique in, environment for folks that was similar to the wilderness work I did. Mm -hmm. There's a perceived risk with with the horses because they're so so huge from a thousand to twelve hundred pounds um, and regardless of of how great a horse person you might be um, you're not really going to stop that horse if that horse wants to do something so there's a perceived risk to it as well but equines are prey animals and humans are predators and so there's a the stuff that I started out speaking to about the that sense of safety, that sense of um, fight or flight, that sense of um, shutdown or, or don't move. Horses, because of their brain development and their, even though they've been in a safe setting in the most part, certainly in the United States for the last hundred years or so, um, they still go back to their sense of am I safe or am I going to be eaten kind of moment to moment. Um, so their response to those sort of um, unconscious cues happen faster than humans do. So if, am I making sense so far to you? Oh yeah. No, 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 I'm no. I, I like it. Okay. Yeah. This makes sense. So the, so the, um, so w there's numerous cool opportunities that, a horse can show a client before the client's even aware of that unconscious um, activation of that vagus nerve in their body. The horse is picking up on, wow, you don't, you don't seem to be all together right now. So that horse um, can pick on that, pick up on the incongruity that the person has. The person may be showing that they're just fine and dandy on the outside, but on the inside, they're terrified or on the inside, they're really sad. And the horse can kind of pick up on that. And if we're doing ground-based activities with folks, the um, horses are more likely, far more likely to be cooperative and do more of what you want if the person is being congruent. Wow. So even if the person is, even if the person is, being really angry as long as they're not being threatening to the horse but if they're expressing their anger if they're expressing their sadness um, if they're expressing their fear uh, then the horse can is, is more able to work with them sometimes folks say that horses are mirrors and and I don't you'll see that in a lot of literature and description of of equine assisted therapy and that's that's I don't I don't think that's the case. I think it's more that horses are um, horses are making judgments. They're not non-judgmental. Um, so, uh, so they pick up on. Go ahead. So and I was just going to say. So there are congruency meters. 
right? So, so they, they, they can show us or, or they, they let us in on what we are already, we recognize, but we don't necessarily say out loud, right? That I'm not congruent right now. My behaviors and my emotional state, I'm showing you one thing and, and the horses can actually pick up on that, 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 the difference between those two things. Yes, as well as, as they, the way they communicate, if, if they're out in the wild, um, there will be a lead mare or a lead uh, stallion or maybe a combination of the two with a group of 5, 10, 15 other horses. Um, and the, the majority of the herd is focused on surviving by eating. They eat constantly in order to stay in order to stay alive and summer they're filling up for the the lean months in the winter kind of thing and and if one of the horses senses danger they don't they don't stop and start neighing and um, stomping their feet and waving flags they sense they sense danger and their cortisol level jacks up and the rest of the herd picks up on that instantly and takes off running and they run away um, they've measured up to as much as a mile and a half away from the whatever that stressor was, um, and then stop. They stop at the edge of the next potential threat. Say it was a mountain lion that was going to be involved. So, so there's that. They pick up on that sense of cortisol from the other herd. Same thing happens in in the in in horse farms and stuff. Where like at the horse farm I was working at a, a last year in a group practice. There might be a plastic bag that that floated by outside the paddock, and one horse would startle at that, and the other horses who had their back completely to the horse that saw the plastic bag would take off running and run as far away as they could to the other side of the paddock, um, and then they'd stop and look around and and realize, oh, it's not a horse eating horse eating animal; it's just a plastic bag that rustled. Um, so, so again, long way of saying they're able to pick up on human sense of that as well. Lots of folks, animal assisted therapy is a really, really cool thing that happens in a lot of settings. Having dogs and cats, having dogs come into hospital settings is awesome. Um, cats, sometimes people use bunny rabbits, um, whatever it might be. Uh, but the difference with dogs and cats in particular and horses is that dogs and cats are predators. So they have a different way of interacting with us and different things to teach in a sense compared to equine. Wow. One thing that you, you brought up and in, in the correlation between the outdoor experiences, the, the, the ropes courses, whether they're in an urban setting or uh, out in, in the wilderness and, and uh, animal assisted or particularly this equine therapy that we just talked about is this idea of perceived risk as a teacher. Um, and I, I think we undervalue the impact that navigating perceived risk can actually teach us, right? So most of the things in our lives are, are often perceived risk. It's very interesting right now that folks are preying on the fears of those immigrants coming to take your stuff or uh, the fear that 2040 or 2020, you know, 2040, 2050 is uh, where, you know, the majority of the population will be, um, 
people of color or some kind of combination of that. I think that perceived risk or that perceived danger for some folks is not something they've been able to kind of deal with, whereas other community, other, other folks have been dealing with that perceived risk every day. Also, as you were talking about, again, what it, what it comes down to for everybody, I think, is if I allow myself to be overwhelmed by, um, by the, the media input I'm getting from whatever choices I have about what my preferred um, source of information might be um, from the holiday season that I'm not sure when folks will be listening to this, but they'll probably be able to reflect back on that sort of classic thing of going back home to the family and having to decide how much am I going to engage when people bring up political stuff that, that is I'm absolutely positively opposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the, and the ability to, to navigate that personally, I think again, is based on that idea of, of finding balance for myself. So, so moderating the exposure that I, that I give myself to social media, moderating the amount of, um, television, radio news that I listen to, um, and then taking that, that. Um, opportunity as somebody who maybe hasn't experienced a bunch of trauma, but to realize that for folks that have, they're getting more and more triggered by that. And to realize too, that that part of what you're getting to is that idea of um, like, if I think, I think part of what goes on when, when we look at um, immigrant situations or the, the caravan coming to the border and all that kind of thing is that it's, it's, been about for for as long as we've been together as a country the idea of the other um, and the other is danger and, and whether the other is somebody from that next village who's competing for resources with me or or the other is part of the unknown um, it's easier for me to to um, jump into that sense of feeling fight or flight feeling unsafe Mm-hmm. and not attempt to do the piece that's really important. When, when I feel safe, then I can connect. Then I can create relationship. And relationship is something that lots of folks say, um, lots of researchers have talked about. Relationship is everything. The only way I can ever grow, the only way humans can ever grow, change, or learn is through relationship, um, through connection. And otherwise, there are no changes in the neural pathways in my brain. There are no um, opportunities for to be open to learning in a school setting. There aren't any opportunities to um, me to have any any way of, of changing the behaviors I have. So the again going back to that idea of self-care, um, I have to I think I have to be aware all the time of what are those inputs that are coming in and then have a balanced approach to what's going on and the, then be aware in my professional setting, if I'm an administrator in a hospital setting or if I'm a provider, um, how, how am I approaching the person that I may have lots of contact with daily as a coworker or the person that I may see briefly for just the appointment time that they have with me. My sister, I'm um, in central Kentucky and she's a home health care nurse. She's been a, 
home health care nurse for about 20 years and she works with the VA now. And she's, I mentioned that I was going to be talking with you and, and she said, oh my, I go into homes all the time with lots of veterans and they go on and on about um, sort of supporting the current administration and, and feeling great about the way things are going. And she has a completely different perspective. Um, so she says she has to take care of herself by doing things like biting her tongue or, um, you know, not taking it home with her at the end of the day and not, not sweating that, but recognizing that this person who's needing my care in this setting at home, um, rather than having to come 40 miles, 50 miles to the VA, um, is deserving of my time and my presence. And the more I can regulate myself in the moment um, and not get caught up in, in judging that person, not get caught up in wanting to battle or argue that person, then I'm gonna provide not only taking their vitals and making sure that they're taking their medication or seeing if things need to be changed in their medication before their next visit, um, but I'm going to be providing a healing opportunity for them just by being in their presence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, it really is about connections. And uh, I'm glad that you and I have been able to, to connect and, and reconnect and hopefully we will connect again. Uh, Russ, I just want to say thank you so much for, to, to speak with me and speak with us. Uh, I'm really excited about what you're solid things to think about. So th th this idea of being mindful, grounding ourselves and recognizing that many of the risks that we're facing may be in fact perceived risks and that to overcome those, we, we, can, uh, we can overcome those through relationships and that we grow and learn through relationships. So um, in, any last words? No, just um, I'm, again, from a personal perspective, I'm I'm happy to have had the opportunity to talk with you and am, in a sense, I have no responsibility for the, the path of your career or anything like that. It wasn't <laughs> like I was your, I wasn't your personal mentor at the, no, the no. American Youth Foundation conferences back in the day or anything like that. But, um, for, but the idea, I think it's really important for, for all of us to recognize that Young people have been the focus of my my work for um, again over thirty years, and to really respect where they're at and respect the um, the opportunities um, that comes. Whether you're a, a white middle class kid from Kentucky going up to the shores of Lake Michigan, um, or whether you're somebody coming from uh, the place where you were, uh, yeah. and 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 coming up and, and suddenly hanging out with all these white folks and singing camp songs and doing pretend native American stuff. Um, yep, kumbaya. That, that, <laughs> that, that, um, that a few decades later, you can be at a place that's as um, influential and that provides so much support and help for healing professions all around the world as the Mayo Clinic. So um, I'm kudos to you and to your, to your coworkers uh, for the work that you guys do and the example that you all set every day in the in the the work you all provide for folks. I appreciate it, and uh, again, I think Mayo is the um, 
you know, one of the best places in the world to, uh, to, to get healthcare, and it's because of the people and the values. This has been another episode of Speaking of Diversity and Inclusion at the Mayo Clinic. I want to say thank you so much to Russell for engaging us in some really thoughtful conversations. Um, thinking about what we can learn from horses, thinking about our own trauma and those adverse childhood experiences, and the tips that you gave us for thinking about how to create psychological safe spaces for ourselves and for others was was a powerful conversation. So I want to say thank you, and I hope the listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. And before we go, I just want to leave you with this. Um, William Mayo said, it's been said, and I believe justly, that one should go to the educator for information and not advice. And so I'd encourage you to continue today looking for information. And we'll see you around. That's it.